Welcome to this week's episode of Forging the Word with Trevor Whitman. Last week, we talked about wisdom and discernment and all the ways that Scripture talks about those two topics. And in doing so, we started talking about James chapter 1. And, and in doing so, I remembered all the reasons why I love the book of James. And so decided that for the next five weeks, I want to do a chapter-by-chapter study of the book of James. So if you want to take out your Bible and follow along, I'll be uh, going through it verse by verse. And I just want to break down observations. Now, this is something that I love about God's Word, is that we could all read the same passage and get very different things from it. And what's great is even in different seasons of our life, we can read a book in one season and get something and read it again and get something completely different. And so I used to love the book of James when I was a kid just because it feels very straightforward. It's written in a way that doesn't really pull any punches. It doesn't have any fluff. It's right to the point. And it tells us how we can live our lives the way that God's called us to. And I really appreciate how James wrote the book. Now, James is an interesting guy in the Bible. Uh, He's actually known as James the Lesser. I don't know if... I'd ever want to be known as Trevor the Lesser. I mean, if that's what you want to call me, then rock and roll. But but James is actually known as James the Lesser. Um, he was the half-brother of Jesus. He was the son of Alphaeus, uh, who is known to be Mary's husband after the death of Joseph. Now, when Joseph died is a little bit under debate. We know for a fact that he was dead before Jesus was crucified, just in how Jesus asked John to take care of his mother after he passed. But we do know that Mary remarried and that she had more children and had a couple of sons. And and one of those guys was James. And James was one of the disciples of Jesus throughout his tenure uh, in his ministry. And what's really cool about James is he's actually described as Jesus's one of his inner three. And I like talking about Jesus's inner three because it's a great example for us in our life, and I call it the 12-3-1 model. So we all know that Jesus had 12 disciples, right? Jesus surrounded himself with 12 guys that he believed uh, to have giftings, talents, surrounding himself with guys that he knew um, would be who he wanted them to be, great people in his life that were going to support, encourage, build up, and be there for him. And what's really cool about watching Jesus' life is in a lot of different ways, he's our blueprint, right? He lived a perfect life. He was not sinful. So whenever we read the Gospels, we can just take a page out of his playbook and go, okay, I can live my life this way. And in this way, Jesus had 12 disciples, but out of those 12, he had what I like to call his inner three, which were Peter, right? The rock, Petra, okay? James, his half-brother, and John, who is known as his beloved. And what's cool about that is Jesus doesn't really hold back in saying that these are, those are his guys, you know, that, uh, that Peter, James, and John were kind of the guys that he leaned on even more so than the other nine. And then out of those three, he had the one, which was John, who was his beloved. That was his closest friend, right? And what's really cool about seeing this model, this 1231 model, is it kind of shows us that in our life, having more than 12 really close friends is just not really possible. I mean, we can try and we can try to hang out with a lot of people and we can build relationships. And I'm not saying cut people off or whatever when it comes to, 
you know, oh, I have 12 friends already. I can't add a 13th, right? (laughs) I'm not saying that. But what's cool about it is it shows us that what we're really capable of, I tell people all the time, if Jesus was only capable in his human form of having 12 good buddies, three really close friends, and then one best friend, then we probably are going to only be capable of having him a little, a little less than that. Now, for me personally, I try to be friends with everyone. That's just my personality. That's not everybody's personality, but for me, I like to be in good standing with everyone if I can help it. I do my best to uh, you know, be kind to people and obviously be in relationship with people, but I've always struggled with this 12-3 model myself because I want to be best friends with everyone. <laughs> and there's just not enough time in the day. Uh, there's not enough capacity in my relationships. And so what's really cool is actually the Lord has kind of found a way to prune my life down, especially in recent seasons here, to where I have, hey, you know, I have a, a couple of really, really close friends, and then I have my best friend and my wife. And now your spouse is generally going to be that one. Uh, it's not true for everyone. And especially if you're not married, then obviously that's not the case. Uh, But how we're built and wired as humans is to be in relationship with people, surround ourselves with people that are going to build us up, that are going to make us better, that are going to encourage us. You know, I said it before and I'll say it again, that we become like the five people around us that we surround ourselves with the most, right? And so Jesus surrounded himself with 12 guys that he believed to be that in his life. And then Peter, James, and John, his close buddies, shared with him a little bit more intimate details, right? Appeared to them on the Mount of Olives and, you know, showed himself in different ways and and let them in the door a little bit more. And then John being his beloved, his best friend, it's probably what he shared probably most things with, right? When we talk about the gospel of John and, and read his account of Jesus' life, he has a very intimate understanding of who Jesus was in a way that no other disciple really did. So kind of cool, right? Kind of cool to talk about James being this really close buddy of Jesus. So then when you read the book of James, he only wrote one book of the Bible. When you read through it, you know that he probably has a pretty good vantage point of who Jesus was, how he lived, how we're supposed to live based on how he lived. And and when he talks, man, we should listen. There's a lot of good stuff. So I'm going to read through little chunks of verses. So if you want to have your Bible out and read through them, I'll let you know what verses we're reading. Read along. I'm going to give you some of my observations, but here's the beauty. You might pull things out of it that I didn't, and that's great. And if you want to go on to the Forge in the Word page on Facebook and share things that you saw throughout the scriptures and observations that you pulled out that I didn't talk about today, feel free to share there. It'd be great to see that. So without further ado, let's get into James chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 first. Here we go. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all that he does. So here's what's really cool is we are going through a trial, everyone, right? 
And that's honestly kind of a comforting thing, but also kind of a hard thing uh, here in 2020. And I know I've struggled with it because every ounce of me just wants to complain, right? If we <laughs> we read the scriptures, it's human nature. All of us just kind of want to complain. And whenever you know any one of us goes through a trial, hopefully we have people in our life that we can share it with and vent to and talk things over. But the, I think the hard thing about 2020 is none of us really can do that. <laughs> because if we're like, oh man, my life is so hard because of 2020 and I'm losing so much. Everyone's like, yeah, dude, uh, so am I. So is everyone, right? So we find ourselves in a really tough time. And what's really interesting about trials, going all the way back to episode one of this podcast, talking about how we grow and the sword metaphor that I used. And what's really cool is James talks about trials in such a way that I talked about growth at the very beginning is that we shouldn't be surprised, right? It's not a sign that you're doing something wrong if you're going through a trial. Now, it can be, right? It can be a door shutting or there can be an indication of you going the wrong way, but don't let that be your default, right? Don't let a trial in your life make you rack your brain at nights on end of, man, what am I doing wrong? Like, why am I going through this trial? Did I do something to make God mad? Am I doing something wrong? Am I sinning? Am I right? And now I got to be, I got to be really careful because it is good to do self-evaluation. It really is good to analyze your life and see areas in your life that need adjusting. And that's not what I'm saying to stop doing. What I'm trying to explain is that if you're going through a trial, you shouldn't immediately go to thinking that way because we want it to make sense, right? We want trials to make sense. We want trials to add up. We want it to have a reason and a purpose. And I think that's true for all trials that we go through and that it's meant to develop us and grow us and we're meant to persevere. And And like James says, we're called to develop perseverance, which helps us to become more mature and complete in our faith. But don't let it be your default to think that I must be doing something wrong. If you're going through a trial, he actually says something that I think is brutal. He says that we should consider it pure joy. And then we go, oh, but not the trial I'm going through. And he goes, oh, no, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Okay. And then he says, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. He's saying, listen, consider it pure joy when you're going through trials because those trials are what force you to grow. I was talking to a buddy earlier this week about some stuff that he's going through. And I just pointed out, I said, listen, man, we all think that we can grow and develop without going through trials or suffering. And the reality is, is most of the time, I'm going to go 95% of the time, it's just not true. If we're comfortable, if we're not forced to grow, most of the time, we're just not going to. Right? We can read all the self-help books we want, leadership books all we want. We're going to get into this later. You can get as much knowledge as you want, but if you don't implement it, it means nothing. It, just, it doesn't mean anything. Right? If you, it's all head knowledge. It's all head knowledge. And so here's what's cool about trials is if we do approach it in the right way, they have a way of maturing us more than anything else in our lives. And what's cool is... Every time we go through a trial, that's an option. Every time you go through a hardship, no matter how small or how big, you have an opportunity to grow. And that should be kind of cool. That should be something that you look at and and you're encouraged because yeah, you are going to get something positive out of a hardship. 
There can be purpose. But when there isn't is when we wallow in it, right? We lick our wounds, we sit down and we're, we're bummed and we're upset that we're even going through a trial, right? We start questioning God's goodness, which is silly, right? But it's normal. <laughs> it's a human response. But we have to fight that because like James points out, trials have benefit in our life. So don't just write off a trial as a hard time. Use it, utilize it, grow from it, become better. Okay, and then he talks about wisdom. And we talked about that last week, so I'm not gonna go into crazy detail, but just reiterating that, hey, we're allowed to ask the Lord for wisdom and he will give it to us freely. If you're going through a trial, if you're going through a hardship, if you have to have a tough conversation, ask the Lord for wisdom. Ask the Lord to speak on your behalf. Ask the Lord to inspire you with the words that need to be said in a way that's going to glorify him, right? And that are going to save relationship, right? We have the, the ability, but a lot of us just don't ask, all right? So James chapter 1, verse 9 through 11, continuing on, says this, the brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. The rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. I really like how James talks about worldly possessions here. You know, we always hear the statements of, you know, you can't take it with you, you know, when you pass away. But other than that, we kind of glorify, especially in our culture here in America, we really value our material items. And yet the Bible continually points out that being rich monetarily, being rich in, in resources that are here on earth, having material items has no heavenly value. Now, is it sinful to be rich? No. Is it wrong to want to have financial stability? No, <laughs> right? None of those things are true. However, we know from human nature and reading through scripture and you know reading things like the rich young ruler that when you have a lot of resources, when you have a lot of money, when you're rich, it almost makes things tougher for you in the sense of, are you willing to lay down everything for Christ? Right when Jesus approaches the the rich young, when Jesus approaches the rich young ruler, it's really interesting. He says, "Hey, Jesus, I want to follow you. I've heard your teachings. I really like what you had to say. I want to follow after you. What will it take?" And Jesus, obviously knowing him, goes, "Hey, all you need to do." is lay down your resources and come follow after me. And that's it. And he couldn't do it because it's a lot easier to follow Jesus when you have nothing than it is to follow Jesus when you have a lot. Jesus knows that and you just read through the scripture, it's just reality. Now, is it impossible? No, of course not. However, it's a lot more difficult. And so he's just reiterating here in James that all things, all items, all worldly possessions that we have are going to erode, right? The riches of this earth cannot be our focus. And the Lord says over and over and over again how he views humility. It's really interesting. He, he links pride and humility with who we are and what we have. And 
who we are as people. And when we read through the Bible, it talks about all the time that God values humility. It's essential. It's essential. And not false humility, not humble brags, right? He's saying, listen, we are called to live a life of humility, not pride. Right? It's really interesting how James frames it here. Because a lot of times, whenever we get going, whenever we get a lot of things under our belt materially or positions or titles, it's really easy to get prideful. It's really easy to say, look what I did, what I earned, what I developed. And the reality is, is without the Lord, we have nothing. Right? With whatever business you started or whatever team you started or whatever thing that you've developed that you're proud of, you wouldn't be able to do if the Lord hadn't given you the talent and the belief to do it in the first place. Simple. Everything you have in your life, if you are married, the Lord allowed that to happen. If you have a home, the Lord allowed that to happen. If you have a job that you love, the Lord allowed that to happen. If you are out of debt or if you have a lot of money or, I mean, go down the list. All of those things, the only reason why you have them is because the Lord gave them. And we're going to talk about that in just a second because James talks about where all good gifts come from. We're going to talk about that in just a second. So let's keep going. James chapter 1 verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because he has stood the test. He will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Okay, again, coming back to this trial issue. Life is a test of our perseverance. Guys, it's not going to always be daisies and rainbows. And again, I'm not saying that to be a downer, right? I know that people hear that and they're like, man, I want to hear messages that are just like happy and joyful and yeah, things are going to be great, which Guys, life is full of some of those things, but life is also full of trials and hardship. And we have to be prepared for both. Yes, when you're going through a good time, things are good. You're hitting a groove. Everything's going for you in your direction, right? Things are going well. Relationships are good. Work's going well. Enjoy those times. I'm not saying don't. I'm not saying don't enjoy those and and wait till the next trial and just you know hold on tight. What I'm saying is, is if we go through a trial, don't be surprised because we're going to go through them. And James is just reiterating, blessed is the man who perseveres. I heard it said from a pastor friend of mine that we're called to live day by day. And especially true in times like 2020, we are just called to obey today, right? Love it in Matthew when it says that tomorrow has enough worries of its own. We aren't called to worry about tomorrow. All we have is right now. All we have is today. And we need this reminder. Everyone has heard what I'm saying. I'm not reinventing the wheel here. But I need this reminder. I need the reminder that all God has called me to be faithful with is today. What am I doing today? Am I doing exactly what I'm called to do today? Am I being obedient? Am I loving people well? Am I utilizing the gifts and the strengths that God's given me for his glory? How am I treating people? Right? All of those things. You see, our faith journey is going to come with challenges. But he has given us his strength to endure, to persevere, and have victory over this life, no matter what is thrown our way. If our perspective is expecting trials 
and that we are going to persevere and that we are going to use the Lord's strength, not our own. That is a very interesting and very important point. We are not called to do it in our own strength. If we depend on our own strength, we're going to fail, period. Cannot do it. And that's not saying I don't believe in you. I'm just saying we are called to depend on the Lord to get us through hardship, trials, anything. We are called to lean on his strength, not our own. Because when we stand the test, as James says, right, we are going to experience the fruit of that perseverance through God's promises that he's given us, right? There's a lot of great things ahead of us, but we are called to live today. Let's keep going. James chapter one, verse 13 through 15 says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me for God cannot be tempted by evil nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when it is full grown, gives birth to death. What I love about these verses here is it goes into this concept of understanding God's character. Now, I've talked about that a few times. I'm going to talk about it a ton, because the only way you get to really understand God's character is by reading his word. Period. Period. And what's crazy is we we beg God sometimes, right? God, speak to us. And he's like, dude, I've given you my word already. The word is me, right? And I am the word. (laughs) There's a verse in there about that somewhere, right? Okay. And what's crazy is the better we understand who God is through the scripture, the more we understand his character. And so some people go, well, The Bible doesn't address every single little thing in our lives. You know, it doesn't talk about technology because we have different technology than they did in the Bible. And I go, well, it does and it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't talk about our technology and how we're supposed to live with it and all that kind of stuff. You're right. However, all the problems that are amongst humanity are nothing new, right? I love Ecclesiastes, right? Where Solomon's writing Ecclesiastes and he goes, dude, there's nothing new under the sun nothing, right? Everything that has been done is going to be done. And he's not talking about technology and how they didn't have iPhones back in the day, right? He's not saying that. What he's saying is that human nature is human nature and it's going to be the same. It's just going to look different, right? People are people, right? There was theft, there was murder, there was betrayal, there was adultery, there was all, everything that was happening in your Bible is happening today. It just, how it's being done, the method in which it's being done is this is a little different. Okay. And so when we read the Bible, when we live our lives, it's so important for us to understand God's character. Who is he? What does he want from us? How are we supposed to live this life? And one of those things that we need to know, and I've heard believers say it before, and it's something that has to be addressed is that God's character is never to tempt us. Temptation does not come from God, period. It's the same conversation that suffering does not come from God. Guys, it's important to know these things because we have to know his character. It's how we distinguish between him and the enemy. Again, it's the difference between conviction and guilt. One comes from the enemy, one comes from the Lord. And we only know which one it is by where it leads us. So in this same way, we are not tempted by God ever. It's not in his character. We are tempted by our own flesh. Now, this is really interesting. 
Okay, I love I love people. I love y'all, but here comes the conviction train. A lot of people love to blame all their problems on Satan. Oh man, Satan led me to sin. Satan led me to do this. Satan did this and Satan did that. I go, first of all, Satan is not omnipresent like the Lord. Okay, Satan can only be in one place at a time. He's also in the confines of creation. He is a created being, which means that Satan is on the same linear timeline as us. Okay, the other part is, is he can only be in one place at a time, right? Like I said, he's not omnipresent. The Lord is omnipresent. He is not. But a lot of times we equate him with God as his rival, right? When we watch good versus evil, we see them as equals fighting it out and duking it out. And we don't know who's going to win. That's not how real life is. Satan is not God's equal, period. He is not. He is a lesser being. Now, is he powerful? Sure. But he is not on the same playing field. God beats Satan every time because Satan was created by God. Right? He was created as Lucifer, as the high angel of worship, right? And then he fell and all of that. Okay. He was a created being. Satan can only be in one place at a time. So when I hear believers, it's just a little pet peeve of mine. <laughs> when they're like, oh yeah, Satan, Satan tempted me. I'm like, really? Satan, okay, the prince of darkness is in Tacoma, Washington, tempting you. Right? I'm not no offense, but pretty sure there's some people that are in high power and high positions throughout the world that he probably cares more about influencing than you. I'm just, (laughs) just putting that out there. Okay. The world doesn't revolve around us. I don't know if Satan has ever tempted me personally. Now the enemy, sure. Right. He, he has demons and there are, there are definitely demons out there, but I love how James outlines what temptation actually is. Okay. More times than not, you are not tempted by Satan. More times than not, you are not tempted by demons. More times than not, you are tempted by your own self. And I know you don't want to hear that. We don't always want to take that responsibility. We'd rather pawn it off on some evil being. But the reality is, is we're all evil beings. We're all broken. We all need Jesus because we're all jacked up. We all have evil desires that we have to keep in check. And it's really interesting because he points out that it's our own flesh that leads us to our sinful desires, right? And that's why when Paul talks in 2 Corinthians 10, 5, when he talks about us taking every thought captive, that's exactly what he's talking about. Guys, this sheds light on the Bible's view about what I talked about in episode one, that our thoughts lead to words and our words lead to actions and our actions lead to habits and our habits lead to our legacy. We have to be mindful about what we allow our minds to rest on as our desires. Because guys, that is something that we control. People like to play the victim mentality and it drives me crazy. I can't control what I desire, Trevor. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. It's all about what you allow your mind to dwell on. Now, do we have leanings, right? Does our flesh, because of generational sin and all kinds of stuff, do we have do we have general leaning towards sin? For sure. There are certain things that are more appealing to me than they are to you in a sinful way that we have to fight and we're going to fight differently. And what, you know, lures us in and what our desires are are all going to be different in some way. Okay, but sin is the same in that 
We are called to fight that. We are called to take our thoughts captive. We control what we allow our minds to desire. And if you don't believe me, that's because you're living in a, in a victim mentality, period. You're believing that you can't control your actions. You're believing that you can't control your thoughts. You're believing that you can't control your desires. And it's just not true. It's just not true. Okay. It's like weeds out in your garden. If you maintain your garden, as in if you go out and start picking weeds as they start to pop up, they're not really a big problem. Okay, when we li- first lived in Tacoma, when we first moved up here, we lived in a rental house and it had a ton of weeds and a ton of blackberry bushes and it was nasty in our backyard. And I decided one day that I was going to clean it all out. So I cleaned out all of it and it took forever. Right. And I kind of like to use that illustration for like when you first get saved, there's a lot of really easy things that you got to take out of your life. There's a lot of stuff to clear out and it takes some time, but it's honestly kind of addicting. You're like, dude, I'm cutting all this bad stuff out of my life. And it's really obvious how good that is for me, right? There's some uh, instant gratification in that. And you're just taking it all out and immediately it looks better. Okay, but when you're a believer for a long time, your yard just has some weeds pop up. And if you just go out and maintain it, right? If you're spending time with the Lord every day and you just maintain your backyard a little bit, like you just go out and pick the weeds as they start to pop up, they don't become a thing. They don't. It's only when you allow it to go. It's only when you allow those weeds to grow. It's only when you allow all of those desires that are sinful to pop up and to sit there and to grow and get bigger and bigger and bigger. And yeah, at first the weed doesn't look like it's a big deal. It's not too bad, but eventually it grows into a behemoth, grows into this mammoth problem if you allow it to grow. And so what James is saying is here, Do not allow your desire to be conceived because if it gets conceived, then it's going to be birthed into sin and sin leads to death. So he's saying control what we desire, control our minds, control our thoughts and do maintenance by spending time with the Lord every single day. And guess what? It's not going to be as hard to fight off that sin if you're spending time with the Lord every day and just doing maintenance. Okay. Let's keep going. James 1, verse 16 through 18. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like the shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of all he created. I love this. Everything good in our lives comes from him, and we should thank and praise him often for it. Right? We don't deserve any of it. We are not entitled to any of it. We've already touched on this a little bit, so I'm going to keep moving. He says, we are here for a purpose. I love that. Right? He says he chose to give us birth through the word of truth. Right? He put us here for a purpose. You are here for a reason. You are here in this exact time in history for a reason. He chose you. He knew you before you were even born, right? Love that. I love that. And this comes into the idea, and we'll talk about this really quickly, of this predestination versus free will, right? Do we actually get to choose God or does he choose us? And I say, yes, (laughs) right? How do I know that? Well, God's outside of time, right? That answers that question simply. God is outside of time. How do we know that? Well, where do we get our concept of time from? The sun. 
right? Our rotation around the sun, the spinning of our earth, right? And our rotation around the sun. Time is different based on what planet you're on within our solar system. Kind of cool. So on certain planets, a day is 16 hours. On some planets, a day is 36. On our planet, it's 24, right? And then how far away from the sun dictates that, right? How large the planet is, how fast it rotates, all of those things come into play. We get our concept of time based on our rotation of the sun. Now, who created the sun? (laughs) God did, right? So God is outside of time. So I believe that God can know the result without making that choice for us. I love the illustration of a DVR, right? It's kind of like if I record a Seahawks game, I hear about the score. I hear about who scores. I hear about who got the touchdowns and how many yards Russell Wilson got and all of that. And I know all of that information. And even though I haven't watched it yet, I still know the ending. So then when I go back and watch it, I still get to see what happened, but I already know the result, right? And because God's outside of time, he doesn't operate on our linear timeline. He already knows the end. He knows how this ends. That's how we can have complete confidence in how this thing works out is we can read our Bibles and go, oh, God says, hey, in the end, I win. Satan loses. People that follow after me, they're going to be set to go and we're going to spend eternity together. And you're like, perfect. And we can trust that. Why? God's already there. God's at yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He's already there. He's already done it. It's kind of breaking your brain a little bit, but it's, it's true. And God being outside of time, okay, kind of indicates everything I need to know about predestination and free will, which is that God, in my opinion, is large enough to know how everything goes, but still giving us the choice to follow him, right? Choice leads to intimacy. We talked about that last week. We choose to follow after God in our own free will. Yep. But God also chose us. Well, he chose us because he knew that we would follow him. Right? Kind of fun. It kind of puts that to rest. Right? People fight about Calvinism and Arminianism all the time. And my answer is always the same. I believe that God is big enough to do both. That he knows the ending, but that we still get to choose him. And even though we may not know exactly how that works, I believe that's how it does work. Because scripture backs up both sides of that. Okay? James 1, verse 19 through 21 says this, My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Okay? Some great and obvious (laughs) principles in nature. And yet, Just because they're simple doesn't mean they're not difficult. We have so quickly lost in our society these traits, right? Nothing about our society is quick to listen. And I'm guilty of it just as much as you are. Nothing in our culture is about being slow to speak, right? Look at social media. Oh man, it has never been easier to be quick to speak to a lot of people all at the same time. Never in the course of history. Never in the course of history can we speak faster than we can right now. Okay, I love how Mike Tyson says it. (laughs) This might be a little controversial, but I love this quote. He says, social media made you all way too comfortable with disrespecting people and not getting punched in the face for it. (laughs) 
I love that because he's talking about this concept of social media that we can hide behind our keyboards and say whatever we want to say, but we won't have any consequences or we'd like to think that we don't. But there are. Guys, we live in a time where it is the hardest time in history to be slow to speak. And yet we are called to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. It's a good reminder for all of us. It's simple. I don't need to teach you about it, right? Like there's not much more to say about that, okay? But there is an important note about anger. Now, this is really interesting, okay? Going back to last week, there's a lot of things that people have been taught where Christians believe that, you know, things are sinful when they're not. And anger is a great example of this. Anger in and of itself is not a sin, right? We see people all throughout the Bible that have this thing called righteous anger, Jesus being one of them. One of my favorite passages about Jesus is when, you know, if being slow to anger is how he does things, then that means there's quite a bit of buildup to this moment. But in Matthew 21, when Jesus is flipping over tables because of what they're doing in the temple, right? And he's ticked flipping over tables and calling them out. I love that because that shows Jesus's righteous anger. Now there's a difference between righteous anger and anger that leads to sin. And it's just not true that anger is a sin. Again, if it was, Jesus would be in trouble. Also, God has a thing called wrath and there's anger in the Old Testament when the Israelites, you know, disobey, right? So the difference is, is that James is telling us not to be angry. He's just saying, be slow to be angry. And honestly, that rings true all throughout scripture. And you read the Proverbs and it talks about all the different things about anger. It never says never be angry because it's sinful. It just says be slow to anger. In Ephesians 4.26, it says in your anger, do not sin, right? It's just saying in, it's just saying refrain from anger to avoid sinning in your anger. Okay. And lastly, it talks about that the word has been planted in us. And just like any plant, it needs proper nutrients. And those cannot exist with moral filth and evil in our lives. Guys, we cannot live in sin. Now, what does that mean? Well, living in sin means that you are continuing to live in sin and not trying to get that out of your life. You've just accepted it. You've just said, hey, you know what? This is who I am. I'm just going to do this. And I don't really care what anybody says. I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care what the Lord says. I'm just going to do me right? That's living in continual sin. And this is exactly what James is talking about. He's saying, listen, get that moral filth and evil out of your lives. If you are sinning, then you need to repent, which is to turn 180 degrees away from your sin and do the opposite. We are called to ask for forgiveness, to restore relationship. We are called to repent, turn from our sin and to live differently. That means we need to constantly be checking ourselves and getting that stuff out of our lives because we cannot become who God has called us to be if we live in continual sin. Now, are we sinners? Yes. Are we going to continue continue to sin? Absolutely, right? That's part of living in a broken world and in broken bodies. However, that is not an excuse to just keep doing it. Just because we are going to sin doesn't mean that we should, obviously. We are called to live holy and upright lives that is above reproach to the best of our ability, right? And that's not legalism. That's just the life that we're called to live. We're going to mess up, but we should be striving to live a life 
of holiness. Okay, in James 1, 22 through 25, it says, Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror, and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. We cannot be passive observers. We can't. We cannot just be passive observers. We are called to do. We are called to live it, right? We can listen to as many podcasts as we want. We can read the word as much as we want. We can read books. We can do all types of things. But if we're not living it, it's all for nothing. It's all for not. Knowing is not good enough. Guys, I love using the example of demons in this case, right? The word says that demons know who Jesus is. Demons acknowledge that Jesus is the son of God. Just acknowledging that Jesus is the son of God is not enough. It's not enough. We are called to be in relationship with him. We are called to live a life that is pursuing after him, where we are in a constant state of repentance and living the way that he has called us to live. We are called to obey and we are called to grow in the ways of the Lord, but not just obeying just because we have to, but because we want to, right? The Lord cares about our heart behind the obedience as well. And lastly, in James 1, 26 through 27 says this, if anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Guys, talk is cheap. It's cheap. Even me doing this podcast is cheap if I don't live what I teach. I try to be so careful and not teach something that I don't do myself because I can't lead you where I haven't been, right? But what James talks about here is this. Listen, if you consider yourself religious, which, you know, I have a ugh, feeling towards that anyway, <laughs> that word, right? I don't like thinking that I'm religious, right? I like to think that I'm in a relationship with Jesus, but those are semantics, right? Those are just words. What James is saying is, listen, if you say you have faith, but you don't have actions, right? If you don't care for others, if you are living in the pollution of this world, if you are living in sin, if you're living in active sin and unabashedly don't care about repenting or living differently, right? We're not living how Christ has called us to live, right? If we're not caring for people, we're not living the way that Christ has called us to live. If we're not speaking truth, we're not living life the way that we are called to live. So guys, here's the deal. We covered a lot <laughs> in this podcast, but my hope was that you would take something away from this, right? Doing an exegetical study like this is like throwing it all at the wall and hoping that something sticks, right? My prayer is that something would stick out to you and that you can meditate on what we talked about today, that you would take it into your day, that you would share it with others, that you would encourage others with what we talked about today. My hope is this. My hope is that you get a little bit of encouragement, a little bit of conviction. I know that in my study of this and my teaching of this, that it has been convicting and encouraging to me. 
And my prayer is, is that you would take that into your life, that you would apply it, right? Just like James said, you wouldn't just listen to this podcast and just say, hey, that was a good word, and then go about living your life like you would even if you hadn't listened to it. My prayer would be that as you hear God's word, right, out of the book of James and some observations from it, my prayer would be that you would take something from today's podcast, really mull that over, right? Really mull that over. What, what nugget can you take from what I talked about today that you can go and apply to your life, that you can go do, right? That you can go live what the word says to do. And my prayer is that next week when we cover James 2, that you would tune in to Forge in the Word with Trevor Whitman. Yeah.